Have you ever texted somebody and gotten a response kind of like this? Hey, how was your day? OMG, you'll never guess what happened to me. Really? What happened? Well, I nearly got into an accident at the corner of the, by the church. I totally forgot they put up stop signs. You know, it, it's a fairly innocent text message, but couched in the reply is this little acronym OMG. You guys know what it means? Yeah. Culturally, it means, wow, or this is big, or like, it's just an excl- exclamation, right? It's not that big of a deal, is it? Except us uh, Bible-reading Christians, we see that phrase, and a little twinge in the back of our minds says, oh, it's not the best. Maybe we shouldn't be saying that kind of thing. And, and when we hear somebody saying, oh my God, or saying Jesus Christ in the context of some uh, crisis or challenge that they're facing, or hurt hand, or whatever it is, um, that there's something in us that just says, shouldn't be doing that. There's something wrong with that. But I, ha- I have to ask the question, is cursing really the point of the third commandment, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Really? God's not going to hold you guiltless if you say OMG in a text message? What, what, is this, what is this command really talking about? David DeYoung, in a book that he appropriately titled The Ten Commandments, because that's what he's talking about in the whole book, he says this about the third commandment. When we come to the third commandment, we feel like we can let our guard down just a little. Watch what you say, don't swear, be careful with your OMGs. The third commandment feels less like a bedrock principle and more like a good reminder. Have you ever looked at it that way? It's been like, yeah, yeah, I won't swear. In this third message in a series that I'm calling God Wrote Love about the Ten Commandments, uh, I'm calling, or I'm, I'm looking at this subject of the Ten Commandments from the opposite perspective. Uh, most of the books I read are focused on, on what the Ten Commandments are and what they mean and, and really the implications of what they're protecting us against. But I want to look at it from the opposite perspective. I want to turn around and let the law and what it protects us from, all that evil, be behind me. And I want to look at the vast field of opportunities the law enables because God says that his law is a law of love. And if it's a law of love, then what does love mean? What does it mean to keep this law? Today we're looking at this third commandment, and I'm I'm titling this sermon, Don't Abuse God. And I think we need to understand what's so important about this law. And, uh, And what does it have to do with love, after all? What's really significant about this? And to help us understand this law, I really think the best thing to do would be to go back to the original fall of Lucifer. Doesn't that make sense? It's a good connection, right? Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, uh, gives us a picture of Lucifer's transformation from an angel of light to the father of lies. And we learn that he became filled with pride in his own beauty and his own uh, perceived capabilities. And he decided that, well, in uh, verses 13 and 14, he says things like, I'll ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I'll sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will make myself like the Most High. This is his goal, is to replace God. And then Revelation 12, 7 to 9, describes a war in heaven. And the end of this war is that Satan and all the evil angels that followed him and and fought against God and all his righteous angels, they were cast out of heaven. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19, describes the war in more detail. 
And it gives us a hint at the weapons that were used. Verse 18 describes in this way, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Whether physical weapons were used, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't describe that. But the one weapon it does tell us about is the weapon of deceit. It says the, this phrase, the unrighteousness of your trade. And that word trade can just as easily be trading. And what do you have to do in order to trade? What do you have to do in order to trade something? Barter or sell, right? Th- think about the phrase that we have, um, the, the used car salesman. D- does that uh, conjure up wonderful thoughts in your mind? I just want to say that I would be honored to be a used car salesman. It is a noble trade. If you are a used car salesman, then, then God bless you. Um, but there seems to be something about trickery and deceit in that, in that phrase. We kind of assume that they're selling us uh, a wagon with some problems, if you know what I mean. And, and this is the problem with Lucifer. He's selling something. The unrighteousness of your trade, the unrighteousness of your selling. He's got a He's got an agenda, a sales pitch. He's selling ideas. And it's because of his gossip that a third of the angels follow him and reject God. And it's at this point that we begin to know Lucifer by a different name. The word Satan simply means accuser. He's the the ultimate accuser of God and of the brethren, we find out later. And he's also... He's also the one that uh, he accuses everything that God is to us and to the angels. And I think this third command is really about what Satan was doing. In the third command, God is saying, don't defame my name like Lucifer did with lies and gossip. He's also saying, don't act like you can be me like Lucifer did. And he's also telling us, don't claim to be a supporter of me and then draw people away from me. You see how Lucifer seems to connect with the third command? And now while this command does imply reverence for God and allegiance to God, uh, it's, it's got more in it than just not taking his name and using it flippantly as a curse word. And, and we should be careful about how we put God's leap of this command, but it's also about knowing who God is and being careful to truthfully communicate about him to others. And it's also about living a life that's authentic and in God's spirit and and avoids hypocrisy. That's all couched in this idea of the third command. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 7, it makes this is a big deal to God. It matters a lot. Uh, If you think about it, uh, men, if somebody were to say terrible things about your wife, would you get angry? Would, Would there be a cause for you to rise up and defend them? If somebody said something bad about you and called you a thief or a liar or um, whatever, said something to tarnish your name, would that cut you to the, to the heart? Would that, make, would that be a big deal to you? It would. And it's a, it's a big deal to God as well. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, the Lord passes judgment on a man who was cursing and blaspheming him. And he says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. This is a big deal to God. In fact, Jesus thought it was so important for us to 
recognize the holiness of God's name that when he taught his disciples to pray, he began, he began by telling them who to pray to, our Father which art in heaven, and then he followed up with this statement. The very first thing that we should say is, holy is your name. To hold something as vain, as the third commandment tells us not to do, means to treat it as insignificant or false or uh, to, to say something wrong about it. But to treat something as holy means to, to consider it as weighty and significant and special. Jesus is saying we should approach God with reverential awe, with an understanding of his holiness and his significance. So in Exodus chapter 33, just a little bit after the Ten Commandments are given, um, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And God responded by saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. There's something about God's glory in his name. The, the name kind of contains his character and his, his reputation, who he is. And to take God's name in vain is to do harm to God. It's to abuse God so that people don't see him for the good and just and loving and merciful God that he claims that he is. To take his name in vain means that um, we treat God himself as insignificant or as worthless or false. Look at Exodus 34, just the next chapter, and you'll find God describing himself. He puts Moses in the uh, crag in the rock, puts his hand over him, and passes before him. And Moses does not go on to describe the features of God and how he looks. Moses simply says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. This is the, the God that we are serving, a God that's both just and loving, who's merciful to thousands. This, this is a beautiful God, a God of love. We abuse God if we live life in a way that explicitly or implicitly rejects these truths about God and communicates to the world a God that's something he isn't. That's, that's gossip, isn't it? False gossip. But we're also abusing God when we claim something about ourselves that isn't true. Lucifer thought he could become God. It's almost like he thought he could pull himself up by his angelic bootstraps and become something he wasn't uh, on a different plane of existence. And that's, I think, why when Jesus claimed to forgive sins, that the Pharisees and the scribes felt so justified in saying that he was blaspheming God. Because in taking the place of God, Jesus claimed to be God, right? The only difference between Jesus and Lucifer is that Jesus is God and Lucifer is just a created being. And so for Jesus to claim to be God isn't a problem. For Lucifer, it's ridiculous. Can a, can a human be God? Can an angel be God? We cannot become God. But when we, by our words or our actions, take the place of God in our own lives, then it defames God's name. It abuses God in the sight of other people. His name is tarnished because of our actions. So I want to turn to Galatians, and you can open your book, your Bibles there to Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to kind of skip through just like one of those skipping stones on the lake. Um, we're going to hit several of the texts 
all the way through Galatians, because I want to get a big overview. I kind of think that, that Paul is responding to the, the third commandment, maybe not intentionally, but it seems like he's responding to the third commandment because he uses some third commandment language right at the beginning. After a little bit of an introduction, um, he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. When we, when we defame God's name, we're saying that he's something that he's not, right? What's the gospel? Do you want to hear some gospel news today, some good news? What's the gospel? Let's turn to chapter 2, verse 16. He says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, the gospel that they're turning to is a gospel of pulling yourselves up by your earthly bootstraps and thinking that you can do something that God claims that only he can do. And that's, that's exactly what, what Satan was doing, wasn't it? He was saying that he could take the place of God. When you say, I can do something towards getting to heaven, I, I've got to keep this law, then what you're saying is, God can't do it, or God isn't sufficient to do it. I have to take his place. Paul turns his focus from the prohibition, don't do this, don't um, turn to another gospel, to uh, the positive side, which is really what I want to know about. Like, how do you keep this law, and what does it have to do with love? And, and so Paul turns his focus there in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't know about you, but crucifixion is, the, the end of crucifixion seems to be pretty consistent. It's death, right? You, you die on a cross. Jesus died on the cross. When we're crucified with Christ, we don't live anymore. But Christ, who lives in me, he says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm dead. I can do nothing. But Christ lives in me. That, that's the gospel. Some of Paul's questions make me laugh because in Galatians chapter 2, he, he asks this, I think, kind of funny question. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did you force God to give you his Spirit by your goodness? Is that how it worked? And then he continues on and, and he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How do you get these miracles? How do you get the Holy Spirit? Is it because you work really hard or is it because you believe? Think of uh, somebody coming up to you and what you might say. Uh, somebody comes to you and they say, we, I have this special prayer request. So-and-so needs healing, right? They come up to you and, and their suggestion is that, that everybody goes out and, and today, we all do three righteous things. The more righteous, the better. And when we get back tonight, we'll have prayer meeting, and we'll pray, and we'll, we'll command God to heal that person. Because how could he avoid uh, recognizing our good works, right? What would you say to that person? <laughs> would you be like, yeah, that sounds great, let's do it? Or would you say, no, that's not how miracles work? In fact, uh, when you think about God's spirit, it's a gift of grace. 
a complete gift of grace. And any miracles that God does, it's just because he loves us, not because we deserve any of it. Jesus, uh, he healed people back in his day. Did he have requirements for his healing? I mean, was it like, you got to be a tithe-paying, temple-attending Jew, or no, not going to work with you? Is that how God related to people? No, the only requirement was that you believe. If you want to be healed by Jesus, then he's going to heal you. That's the way that he related to people. And it didn't matter if they were a Jew or a Gentile. It didn't matter if they were a tithe-paying member of the church or not. In fact, one guy got kicked out right after he got healed simply because he was associating with Jesus. And Jesus was like, that's cool. He wasn't so focused on that. What mattered was, do they believe? We don't merit God's grace of forgiveness or his miracles by our goodness. We inherit his mercy because of the promise that he gave to Abraham thousands of years ago and Adam and Eve long before that. We inherit that because Christ fulfilled those promises and because of God's great love for us. Paul goes on to reason with the Galatians in chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. And he says that uh, this righteousness is by faith, not by our obedience. And he says this, Through faith you are all sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Because you are sons and daughters, God sent his spirit of his, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So did you catch that? We're sons and daughters of God because of Christ, because of the promise that was made through Abraham thousands of years ago and also because of this seed of Abraham, Jesus. And, and God would send this seed into the world that Jesus would come to reconcile us to him. And when we, through baptism, believe in Christ, we're clothed with Christ and we're filled with his spirit. God's spirit lives in us. That's a promise. Do you believe God's promises? That's a promise that you can claim. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul outlines what it means to live in the Spirit. And, and just for context, because we just barely touched chapter 4, he goes on in chapter 4 to say that, that there's two different women. There's the, the woman of the flesh, and then there's the woman of promise, the one of works and the one of, of faith. The, the one of works, guess who that might be? Uh, that's Abraham's wife, Hagar or his concubine. And the one of the promise or of faith, that's Sarah. And then he says that, that it's the, the people in Jerusalem that are obeying God really hard, doing all the good works that they can do. They're children of the promise or, the, or of the flesh. He says they're the children of the flesh. He calls the, the Jews the children of Hagar. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have liked that. And then he says that all of us, talking to these Gentile Galatians, all of us who believe in Jesus, we're the children of promise. We're the children of Sarah. And, and then in chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, he says, For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. It's not whether you're born a Jew and keep all the customs and laws, but whether or not you believe in Jesus and love him. That's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. When you believe you've died to yourself, when you've been buried with Christ, 
that's when you have real freedom. And, and not freedom to do all the evil in your natural hearts, but freedom, as Paul says in Galatians 5.14, to love your neighbor as yourself, because that's what it means to fulfill the law. And when I, when I see that, love your neighbor as yourself, I think, well, that's the last six of the commandments. There's something about this, this freedom that God gives us in loving him and, and, and uh, him giving us his grace. There's something that enables what we couldn't otherwise do. We try all we want, and we cannot produce love. Have you ever tried to love somebody that is just not that lovable? It's not easy to do. And I, I love my children, and sometimes they're not all that easy to love. Have you guys had children? I'm not the only one that's had that experience, right? Um, and they're, they're fantastic, they're wonderful, but at times, they're not very loving. And I've got to say, I've I got to have patience. They're, they're going to be all right. They're just the foolishness of children, right? But some people, they're just really difficult to love. And the reality is we can't manufacture love. Love is a divine act. We're born with selfishness and pride and self-seeking. We're not born with, with a natural inclination to love. That is something that comes from God. How does it put it? We love because he first loved us. We get love from God. And then in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The freedom in Christ comes because he's living in us. His Spirit leads us and empowers us to live this life of love. And after outlining uh, several things that are clearly works of the flesh, uh, things like immorality and idolatry and selfishness and jealousy and a bunch of others, Paul then describes what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, the results of the Spirit living in your life. And you probably know this text well, Galatians 5, to 25. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think that's a fantastic list. I would love it if my whole life was lived by that list. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like yourself a lot better if you were always these things? He, he goes on to say, there is no law against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's something about this new life that's different than the the old life of trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. There's something freeing about it and something loving about it. Paul finishes Galatians, just because we need to wrap up the book uh, to get the big picture. He finishes Galatians with a couple thoughts. One is about people who are doing wrong things. And he's like, don't judge them, but go and, and encourage them. He uses the word restore them. And then in verse, chapter 6, verse 2, he says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And then in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he says, Don't get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, if we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Do you see what the, the context of this working is? It's about living by the Spirit, not about pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, but about letting God's Spirit transform your life. Here's my summary of Galatians, 
and how it ties into the third commandment. I think what Paul is saying is don't defame God's name by acting like you can save yourself by keeping the law or by telling other people that they can. Instead, by faith, die to yourself and be resurrected to a new life in Christ. Christ will send his spirit to live in your heart and you'll see the fruits of God's spirit become part of your life. Is that good news? I think that's, I think that's the gospel, at least the gospel according to Galatians. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, we read that it's only by God's Spirit that we can do good works. Jesus says that um, others will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I think that's the whole point. It's not for me to be saved that I do good, but it's to glorify God in heaven. It's to, it's to make His name great. It's to hallow His name. When God's Spirit lives out Christ's character in me, then others will see God and will glorify Him. He is holy. He is just. He is good. I'd like to suggest that we shouldn't defame God's name anymore, not, not just by not cursing and putting OMGs in our texts, but by living a life that gives glory to God, a living a life in God's spirit. Sometimes when I look at this, I kind of think, this is just theological mumbo-jumbo. Right, you know, say some incantation and miraculously some change of the heart to some change in the mind will take place and we'll stop, uh, stop wanting sin and we'll start loving people, right? But that's, that's not how it is at all. It's a very practical, relational interaction. When I see God as the God of the universe, the creator of me, the Lord of everything, and I, I give him my allegiance, when I say yes to God, he becomes the Lord of my heart. And when he's the Lord of my heart, he's not fighting with me anymore, you know, me trying to take control of my destiny. He gets the freedom to do whatever he chooses in me. And it's, it's the result of that relationship, Christ in me, that's where the change begins. And first, because of his great love with which he's loved me, I begin to love him back. And then because I love him, I start to see the value that he places on each one of you and I start to love you too. It's a very practical relational thing that's going on. We love him because he first loved us. We can only keep this law of love when he is living in us. We can't do it otherwise. I think sometimes, I've mentioned it before, we kind of think of the Ten Commandments as a checklist. Nope, didn't curse today. Nope, didn't kill anybody today. Nope, didn't commit adultery today. Didn't even lust after anybody. Good for me. Uh, nope, didn't lie well, I don't think I did. Um, <laughs> nope, didn't, didn't uh, break the Sabbath, right? I, I only went into my ankles into the water. We, we have this list of things that we would see as, as the commands, but, but really the command is to love, right? The command is, is this vast opportunity of unlimited potential of loving God and loving you guys. That's what the law is. And I will fail every time. No matter how many lists I check off, I will still fail because my heart is selfish. The only way I can keep this law is because God's love abides in me as I abide in Christ. Would you like to receive the gift of God's Spirit today? Would you like Christ's righteousness to be yours, to cover your sinfulness and selfishness? Would you like your life to be filled with love, love for God and love for all the other people that he's put in your path? I think that just like Jesus' miracles, we can safely say, having sped through Galatians, that the only requirement is that we believe. He just says, come to me. If you're willing, I'll do a new thing in you. 
And the Bible makes it clear that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, to finish it, to bring it to a, a final close at his second coming. Would you let Jesus take over your heart today? Would you let his name be glorified in your life today? Let's pray. Father, these commands that you gave Israel a long time ago, it's so easy for us in our selfish, um, carnal minds to think that we can do our best and keep them and, and that that'll make you love us. And I'm just so glad that that's not why you love us. You just love us because you are love. And you put such a high value on us that you gave all of heaven for our sakes. You died so that we could live. Please give us, give us today that relationship with you, that love. Help us to see you and, and your loving character in a way that would inspire us to love you and, and love others. Let us walk in your spirit today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.